Welcome to a midweek edition of Writers Festival Radio. This is Living and Dying, Part 2. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and I do hope that wherever you are, you are supporting your local independent bookseller. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season, and to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Our entire virtual season is available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Today, we'll continue exploring what death means to the living and how we carry loved ones with us to lose a life partner to lose your child. This is loss at its most intimate and devastating. Up first is a conversation between Peter Schneider and Lorna Crozier. Peter is a longtime friend of the festival and is the manager of the Canada Council's Public Lending Rights Program, which provides invaluable support to Canadian authors whose work is available to the public through our libraries. Lorna Crozier is one of this country's most beloved and acclaimed poets. A winner of the Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry, she is also the author of the Book of Marvels, a compendium of everyday things, and the memoir, Small Beneath the Sky. She's an officer of the Order of Canada. And her latest book, Through the Garden, is a deeply affecting portrait of her long partnership with Patrick Lane, the award-winning author and poet, about their journey when Patrick became seriously ill. It is, above all, an extraordinary love story. Here's their conversation. We have this beautiful memoir in front of us that's just being published this month, Through the Garden, which is subtitled A Love Story with Cats. And this is a memoir which contains anecdotes and, and, and memories of your life with your late partner, with your late husband, Patrick Lane. Can you tell us how the book came to be, how this uh, went from being uh, things that you were observing to the finished book, the process of publishing the, the manuscript? Sure. Patrick became very ill in late 2016 with an autoimmune disease that nobody, including seven specialists, was able to diagnose. And it announced itself in various um, symptoms, which kept changing as well, and odd, odd, strange things that were very debilitating, but the, the biggest one was was uh, terrible fatigue. Um, he was in bed most of the day because he just didn't have the energy to put his legs on the floor and stand up. And I was, of course, um, his caretaker, um, his caregiver, and I was pleased to do that, except I was full of fear, full of worry, uh, full of deep concern that I would be losing him. I was also upset for him about the lack of things he was able to do anymore. And the only way I knew how to deal with this, this um, burning ball of feeling in the pit of my stomach was to go into my office and to write about it because it's been what I have been doing for, gosh, 50 years of my life. I have led it as a writer. And writing for me means getting in touch with things that I don't even recognize are there, um, that sometimes I don't even want to know are there. 
Um, and it, it just grounds me in the world. So I started writing about Patrick's illness. It, the book begins in February of 2017, just after he gets out of the hospital in one of his many hospital visits. And while I was writing, I didn't keep notes. I, I just went in my room and, and did a little bit at least once or twice a week. I thought, why don't I embed this? Uh, why don't I interweave it with the story of how Patrick and I met 40 years ago, the story of our lives together, and also my beginning passion for poetry and how it has been an abiding love and reason for me to live all my life. So I began the book then. I knew that I was going to end it when our elderly cat, who we named after the uh, Japanese haiku master Basho. I knew I would end it when Basho died and I knew he was getting close to death. He died at the end of 2018 and Patrick was still alive at that moment. And I, I brought the book to an end then, still full of hope that the doctors would find out what was wrong with my beloved and that the, they would be able to come up with a treatment if, if not a cure and that we would have many years together. And that wasn't the case. Patrick died about three months after Basho. Um, so the book was not going to end on his death, and in a way it doesn't, but I wrote a postscript uh, uh, of just a couple of pages uh, going through my knowing that he wasn't going to be with me anymore. The book is so beautifully composed, and one of the things that I appreciated reading it was the way in which time is used, and you have different lenses, where you're writing in the present tense with Patrick alive and, and ill, in the past tense, in the deep past, remembering how you met and what your lives were like, and in the near past. And there's a, a beautiful modulation of voice throughout the book as you sort of use these different filters. Was that a conscious thing that emerged as you composed the final draft? You know, Peter, in a way, it's it's how it started happening. And I was quite concerned by all of this switching of tenses. It felt like a, a risky thing to do uh, from a, a writing standpoint. I hoped, crossed my fingers, that it wouldn't be confusing and everybody would say, well, when the hell is this happening now? Um, but as the book started to pull together and with the help of a very lovely editor from McClellan and Stewart, Kelly Joseph, um, she kept reassuring me that the, the switch in tenses was fine and that a reader would not have trouble following. And one of the reasons I did it, I think, at least in retrospect, I'm not sure how much uh, I was aware of it at the time of writing, but I, I was aware at the time of revision was that I started to be very confused about when I was writing about how often Patrick was in the hospital and was it four times this year or five times this year? Did it happen in a year and a half? Was he in the hospital in March or was it November? And so those, those emergency times when I had to call 911 seemed to be one time repeated again and again and again. And that was one of the reasons why I, I kept the present tense for them, because it felt very visceral and very happening right now, even though it had happened before. And I feared deeply in my bones that it was going to happen again. 
throughout the book because of these these tense shifts and these time shifts patrick's a, a very immediate and living and warm presence throughout the manuscript throughout the, the the narrative of the book even though as we know in 2020 as readers that he has died uh, i think this is one of the things that makes the book so compelling and so immediate for for a reader the aspect of this book that is also i think extremely beautiful is that in 2004 Patrick published a memoir of his own. And this is a book called There is a Season, which uh, continues to find new readers and is a, a contemporary classic. And were you thinking as you were completing this book in any way of having a companion piece to his earlier book, which in some ways covers similar uh, terrain, gardening, your lives together, his own perspective on his life, and on your marriage, on your relationship. And this is in some ways an echo or a companion piece to that book. I love it that, that you think that because I admire that book so much, not just because Patrick was my husband and, and I'm biased, but I was so proud of him when he wrote that book. I think it's so exquisitely written and so wise and so brave. And, uh, Sorry, I'm getting a bit teary, Peter. It's okay. Um, I have your book on top of his book right now on the kitchen table in front of me. So. Oh, I love, I love the idea that they would be companion books. And uh, oh, get a hold of myself here. I did, uh, I did end up quoting uh, from their season a few times. And right at the beginning of my book and at the end, and uh, I wish I had just quoted it all throughout, <laughs> but I thought that might be cheating. I thought I'd better, you know, depend on my own writing and, and try to at least try to live up to the level of the uh, accomplishment of his. But, but you're right. He mentions the cats in his book and uh, they're, they're, they're big characters in There is a Season. And of course, they're big characters in Through the Garden. And in his book, we are side by side in the garden and in my book we are as well so i i really do like to think of them as kind of twins although uh, i wouldn't pretend that that i mine lives up to his quality but it would be lovely if they were side by side as a reader i can only say that i think they're equally fine books and yet they're utterly distinct you each have your own voice and your own perspective and at the same time, such a respect, a mutual respect and generosity towards one another as writers, as lifelong writers and companions. And the fact that as Patrick was becoming ill and with grave illness, he actually encouraged you to be a writer, to write and to do the thing that you do the best. It was wonderful um, being his companion for many reasons, but that was certainly one of them is... Uh, his support of my writing and my support of his. Um, we could have been envious, jealous people uh, living together as two poets, but we weren't. You know, there were small moments where one would feel, oh, why didn't that happen to me? But they were rare and they weren't long lasting. 90% of our time together, we just uh, exalted in the successes that came one another's way. And when I would teach poetry workshops, I would bring in his poems as exemplars. And he would do the same with me. 
it was interesting. A friend called me the other day and she said uh, she took several poetry workshops from, from Patrick. And she said when he was talking about me, like, well, I can't wait to get home and see how Lorna's doing. He would call me Lorna, but she said he would bring in a poem into the workshop and say, look at how Crozier did this. And she said she always thought that was a sign of respect because he would bring in a poem by by Heaney or by Gilbert or by McEwen and use their last names. And he used my last name as well. So we had that kind of mutual admiration society in terms of our writing, but we were also each other's best editors. We were tough on one another. Um, I wouldn't like it when Patrick said, you know, this poem, you shouldn't send this poem out. It's not there yet. It, you, it has to sit. You need to change the whole beginning. And, and uh, he didn't like it when I said that to him either, but, but we listened and we made our work better because of the honesty and the sharp editorial eye of the other. In, in your works, when I think of Patrick's book, uh, there is a season, a lot of the writing is about the, the courage and the honesty that, that, that it takes to go into recovery and to, to maintain a recovery. And your book uh, speaks to the courage and the honesty that it takes to face death, to face the end of lives of, people and companions that we love in a clear-eyed fashion that's also not sentimental. Uh, can you perhaps talk about our culture and its reluctance to speak directly about death? Yeah, we really are locked away from it, aren't we? Um, most of us did not live with an extended family so that a grandmother or a grandfather would die at home. We, we tend to put people in what we call care homes, which we know now, after all this happened with COVID, is, is a terrible misnomer, and, and I hope those things change. Um, we don't want to face the death of our loved ones or our own, so we all, all seem to pretend in our society that we're going to live forever. And I appreciate the fact that Patrick and I were able to have small conversations about the possibility that he was dying. Um, although he kept trying to reassure me that things were going to be okay by quoting the Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And I sort of started to believe that, but then I, I thought, I thought after, after his passing that maybe what he meant was no matter what happens, even if I die, all will be well because what else can happen? The garden will go on, the pond will go on. The fish will continue to need to be fed. The cat will get you up in the morning. The, the sun will rise. And that's probably was his intent. But I wanted to believe that he thought he was getting better even at the time. So although we had small, brief conversations about it, in a way, I wish we talked about it more. But I don't think he wanted to burden me um, with the, the hard truth that he was so close to the end of his life. In so many ways, uh, Patrick's death was a long goodbye. And if there is any grace note to that or, 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 or solace, it's that reading uh, his earlier memoir and reading your new memoir, um, one really appreciates the sense of not only your connection to one another, but your sense of joy in one another and sense of appreciation for how it ended up, for, for the life that you made together. 
It um, was a tremendously great occasion, the day we met in 1976, when I went to a workshop given by Patrick Lane in Regina. I was teaching high school in Sukkurn at the time, and I had just received Beware the Months of Fire from a, a friend who said, I think you'll really like this, and he meant the poetry, not the man. Um, and the, Patrick's picture on the back cover made him look old and fat. He was tucked into his windbreaker. It must have been a cold day. So I can swear on a, on a stack of, of good poetry books that I was going for the sake of poetry, not for the sake of thinking I'd like to meet this guy. Um, we were both married. Sparks flew almost as soon as we met each other. But we waited for two years because he especially did not want to break up his family. But we couldn't wait any longer when we met again. And uh, we both thought, you know, maybe this will last a summer. Maybe this will last a year if we're lucky. Neither of us would have predicted that 40 years later, we would be so comfortable and devoted to one another. So I, I feel that not only did we share a passion for poetry, um, a passion for, for good literature. We would, some of our nicest times were sitting on the couch and saying, listen to this from someone else's book and reading passages out loud, but also a deep and abiding love of nature. And we were able to show that and act that out in our garden, but also clearing ivy from a whole forest of trees across our road. Um, and on the anniversary of Patrick's death, I had his two sons and their six kids out with me cutting the ivy again because ivy, unfortunately, grows back. Um, and it's going to be something I do every year is go out to those trees and remove ivy um, in his name for his sake because he, he loved every tree in that forest and touched every tree. And uh, I believe his spirit abides in things like that, and it abides in me. In, in your writing, in his writing, there, there's a genuine, I think, a reverence for the natural world. And there's also a respect, a profound respect for the animals that shared your life and that continue to share your life. Um, it's so rare, and it's also so beautiful to read extended passages about the companionship uh, that we share with our companion animals, with the, with the, with the lives that share our own. Uh, Lorna, can you tell us a little bit about the characters in your memoir, about the lives that you shared, you and Patrick, uh, your cats? Well, the first cat we got was when uh, we were together in Regina. It would have been mm, our maybe third or so year together. And we went to the SPCA and we picked up a, a large-headed tabby, who we named Nolan after Alden Nolan. Um, I'm not sure if Patrick made up this story now, but I started to believe it, that when Nolan came home, he sniffed the gin bottle. And Alden Nolan, the great poet from New Brunswick, loved gin, so we named him after Nolan. And he was with us until he was 15 or so. And then we got uh, two more cats, and then we had two, our two final cats, Basho, who was one of the most beautiful cats in the universe. He, he walked with such grace and ease, like a, a whiff of smoke through the plants in the garden. And, and Roxy, 
who caught tree frogs in her mouth and brought them in and let them loose alive without a tooth puncture on them. And then finally, the cat that I'm left with, the cat we named after the Chinese sage and poet Po Chu Yi. We call her Po Chu. And she was feral, and Patrick tamed her to a certain extent. I still am very careful when and if I touch her, I learn to read her body language. Um, she's a monster, but she's my monster. And she's what gets me out of bed in the mornings, and she's what sleeps with me now at night. I ran across a quotation lately that I had saved on a scrap of paper by Anatole France, and he said that until you have loved an animal, part of your soul remains unawakened. And I truly believe that. I think being able to connect with another species across all of our boundaries and the small differences in our DNA, but across the spaces that separate us, is one of the most exquisite life-affirming things that we are allowed as human beings in our brief time on earth. We walk the earth with these creatures, and they teach us how to see. Um, you see things when you follow the eyes of a cat when you're in the garden. I wouldn't have noticed that raccoon in the tree, except Basha looked up at it. You know, I wouldn't have noticed the dragonfly except Pochu's ears turned toward a clicking sound. So I think they expand and they uh, make our, our knowledge and our senses deeper than if we existed on our own. You give them, you bestow a, a rich sense of their interior lives and of their individual personalities in the pages of this book. I'm very pleased, Peter. Lorna, I'd like to invite you to read a passage from the new memoir. Have you a passage selected that you would like to read from? I do. Unless you have one you want me to read. Um, <laughs> I would ask you to read the entire thing. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's so sweet of you. Thank you. Okay, I'll, I'll read a passage from August 2017. The book begins in February 2017. The steroid called prednisone that Patrick must swallow to keep his autoimmune disorder from swamping him with pain, inflammation, and an exhaustion so depleting he looks snuffed out, puts him on edge. He has a word for it and warns me when his irritability spikes, watch out, I'm in a prednisone. I find it hard not to get cranky too and lash out. I find it hard not to get hurt. Walking on eggshells, yes, eggshells with sharp edges, eggshells made of brittle glass. Though he's in the house, maybe sitting on the couch beside me, we're not engaging like we used to. It's easy to upset him. As the hours go by when we don't talk about anything that matters, I have to remind myself that the man I adore and admire is still there. But maybe he won't come back. Maybe this is the new Patrick with whom I'll spend the rest of our days. People like to talk about the new normal and how the caregiver's task is to get used to it. I pray that this isn't how the time we have left is going to be. But if so, I'll treasure the moments when we do connect, however brief, and expand and redefine what I mean by love. This love lacks the physical drive of our early years. We don't flare with passion or anger like we used to in each other's presence. 
but until his illness, that mellowing out was okay. Ferocity had given way to contentment, explosions to a slow burning we still felt below the surface. It warmed our skin when we sat close, but there was no danger it would conflagrate the rooms we lived in. How far we've traveled from our early years together, and how much we still mean to each other, more we've said than ever before. It's not just the length of our relationship that makes us say that. It's all the things we've done together, even the small, inconsequential ones. It's how we listen when the other speaks, how we seek and give advice, how we hold hands when we're walking down the street, and how my heart jumps when I hear his truck in the driveway, the door opening, and his words, I'm home. In this book, you also expand the frame of reference or expand your memories to, to provide us an insight into the writing life over the decades that you and Patrick were poets and were attending residencies, teaching, appearing on the radio. There's something magical about the memories in this book. Uh, the figures who jump off the page, some of whom are recognizable and well-known. In particular, there's a beautiful, beautiful moment when you're recounting hearing the voice of Carol Shields on the radio just after she died. Do you mind sharing that with us? Every year, except for this year, I've gone for two weeks in July to a monastery about an hour and a half outside of Saskatoon near a small town called Munster. It's a Benedictine monastery and they welcome eight writers uh, to spend time in these cell-like rooms doing nothing but writing and walking and dreaming and thinking. And one day, uh, one of the monks came to the table and asked if any of us had known Carol Shields. And Carol was, was a friend and someone whom I admired. I loved her work. Uh, one of the uh, young poets was out for a walk that day that Carol died. And she heard her voice coming from a long, low shed. Uh, it was rather uncanny, a little bit frightening. She walked up to the shed and the voice got louder. And then she heard the sound of chickens clucking. And she looked through this half door. It was a chicken shed. And someone had put a transistor radio on top of a big plastic pail turned upside down. The radio was tuned to CBC. And during the day of, of Carol's death, they had many examples, many passages of her reading that CBC had taped in years past and interviews with her. And at that particular time, Carol was reading from Larry's party. And we know that uh, cows are, are played Beethoven and Mozart so that they will be relaxed during milking time. And I think one of the monks must have thought chickens will lay better if they listen to CBC. I think that should perhaps be put on a t-shirt. But I imagined then when I was uh, cutting through my boiled egg uh, the next few days, I imagined that Carol's voice had been captured inside of the shell and that when I lopped off the top, a word or two might escape and I would hear her in the kitchen. Lorna, when I finished reading your book, um, 
I sat for a while and it made me go to the shelf and to, to pull down Patrick's book, There is a Season. And the thing that I, I, I would like to conclude uh, our conversation with is with this reflection on the generation that, uh, that has had uh, such an incredible journey in the time sort of post-war, post-1960s, throughout the various liberation movements, the sexual revolution, the, the gay revolution, all of it. And geographically, you are from the prairies, from Saskatchewan. Patrick was from the interior of British Columbia, and yet you ended up in this, if you will, a paradise on Vancouver Island in this incredibly benign climate. Do you reflect sometimes on your generational journey and about the move that you made together to Vancouver Island? Patrick used to say that he never dreamt we would end up living outside of Victoria in this, as you called it, paradise. And, and I didn't either. We lived all over Canada as we moved about with various residencies, as you mentioned, uh, in almost every province. And, and we did literary readings in, in every province, including the territories. So we had a, a vast experience of what this country is like. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't expect to be here. And uh, for a long time, I thought we would move back to Saskatchewan, but I think my bones couldn't bear the winter anymore. And we moved here in 91, so that's been quite a while. I've become a coastal person now, much, much to my surprise. But Patrick's generation was tremendously important to me. If you just look at the poets, and the influence they had on on my my generation, which is you know ten years younger, Margaret Atwood was born the same year as Patrick Lane, uh, Dennis Lee, uh, Alden Nolan just a couple of years before. Uh, John Newlove was born in thirty nine or thirty eight. Um, talk about a, a rich cornucopia of poetry, and I read those people. I learned from them, you know, before I met. Uh, Patrick, I, I learned about the, the, uh, the zing of what an image could do, what a well-chosen image could do, the beauty of his honesty, his rawness, his vitality. From Margaret Atwood, I learned how to break a line. You know, um, these, these, these people, our, our poetry, our literature would not be where it is today without them. And uh, I hope that that is one of the legacies that Patrick left behind was his influence on writers my age and then on the next generation, all those people that we taught at the University of Victoria, um, that, that his way of seeing and speaking the world will have some place in the way they do uh, in their own books. And there were, you know, writers like Essie Adujan and Stephen Price and Melanie Siebert, Arlene Perry, um, that, that Patrick and I both taught. And I, I hope that that's another generation that is carrying out, is feeling the ripples of, of, what, uh, of what his generation and, and maybe mine have helped create. And I encountered that quote from Dennis Lee from that very, very famous poem of his, um, it stopped me, stopped me in my tracks. And I'm so, so obliged to you for, for acknowledging him. Now it's my turn to get weepy. Yeah. Um, 
because what he says in that poem is so true. Isn't it? Isn't it exquisite? Yeah. And really, I mean, Dennis Lee is is such a gent. You know, really one of the most generous people um, I've ever met. He and Patrick had a long correspondence going on for about three months, and and then it ended. And uh, I said to Patrick, "Why did it end?" He said, "I don't know." He said, "It's like a wonderful love affair. We we were, you know, passionate and engaged, and it's not that anyone was annoyed or said this must stop. They just kind of petered out, but it's forever there, and uh, they they both really delighted." in having a, a committed and passionate exchange about language and life. Something I find so remarkable in, in the journeys of, of writers and, and particularly the journeys of poets is to transcend upbringing, to transcend the, the environments and perhaps the judgments that people were raised within the frameworks in order to be unashamed and comfortable acknowledging beauty. Yeah. And um, Patrick has uh, two remarkable convocation addresses which can be found online. One is about him working in a mill town in a dead-end, terrible job, and he's depressed, he's out walking, and suddenly a blue butterfly appears from nowhere on a cold wind blown from the south, and it lands on his hands. And his message in that piece is that we must accept beauty wherever it finds us. And he tries to warm it with his breath, which I think is a beautiful metaphor because poetry is a, is a breath act, a breath genre, the breath line. You breathe, you add music to the words, to the language. It's the utterance that makes it alive every time you speak a poem. The butterfly ends up dying, but he is a young uh, working man found beauty in the least expected place. And then his job was to take that beauty out into the world every time he wrote a poem. Lorna Crozier, thank you so much for speaking with me today and for our conversation. Thank you, Peter. It's a very sensitive interview. And as you can tell, I'm still a bit raw about all of this. So I appreciate it greatly. That was Lorna Crozier in conversation with Peter Schneider on her book, Through the Garden, A Love Story with Cats. Next, we turn to Sherry Fitch, a veteran storyteller, educator, speaker, and award-winning author. Sherry trained as a healing lay minister at the Washington National Cathedral, where she served for several years before returning home to Atlantic Canada. She currently belongs to the Holy Disorder of the Dancing Monks and finds greatest comfort in nature. She lives with her husband on a hobby farm in rural Nova Scotia, and they run a seasonal bookshop. Sherry wrote, You Won't Always Be This Sad, in the wake of her adult son's unexpected death. It is a journey through grief towards hope. She spoke with Neil Wilson, the festival's founder and director of our Republic of Childhood Youth Literacy program. Neil and Sherry first met when they were both living in Fredericton back in the 80s. Here's their conversation. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you, Neil. It's so nice to hear your voice. It's, it's been a long time. And so before we get into your book of moments, I thought we could uh, to set the stage. Well, I started writing in earnest when I was about 19, and I started taking writing workshops and that kind of thing then. And because I had two young children, I, I think I could only justify 
taking the indulgence of writing if I produce something for them. And I, I, I actually did. I was inspired by them. The joy of language is so important in writing for children, the musicality of language. And that's what I love to do the most. So I've been doing that, had been rejected, be rejected, be rejected. And then the, the year that I actually graduated from St. Thomas, I was 30 years old. It was 1987 was the year that my that toes of my nose uh, illustrated by molly came out and uh again that was you know i remember beginning university and somebody saying i hear you right and i went oh it's just this little thing i do and looking back at that interview as somebody showed it to me i was like look i couldn't even claim how much i wanted to be published i was oh no no it's just this little thing i do so whenever anybody says to me oh i'm just doing this little thing i say don't call it little because i know where that comes from that comes from that place of i don't know if i really can do it or not but you know yes claim your intention you know so it, it you know I, I started when i was seven like so many writers say but it, where I grew up when I said to the guidance counselor, yeah, I, I want to be a writer. She said, oh, you mean you want to be a journalist and you can go to journalism? I said, no, no, I want to be that other kind of writer. And she goes, oh, I, I, I don't, you know, well, maybe you could go to Ryerson and take journalism, you know, or, or something like that. And I ended up going into nursing, Neil. And that was kind of a fiasco because I called my mother and said, I wanted to help people, but all these people are sick. <laughs> I was very good in the sciences too, but yeah, that was not my thing. So eventually, you know, when I, I, being a young mother, I think all that creativity just came back and I went, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I want to do this. This is what I would like to do. And I went on and got my master's in, in children's literature and that kind of thing because, you know, I take my nonsense seriously. I wanted to know what made excellence in, in, in the genre and I've never, I have to say, I've never regretted it. It's still a very joyful, um, I guess I want to say a joyful song to sing into the world and have people celebrate with you. So, yeah. You speak about your big break. Um, when uh, sleeping dragons all around yes. uh, came yes. uh, and you got a call from Morningside and Peter Zalski. What was that like? Well, you know, I remember my Dustin being eight months old and I was in this little apartment and he was, I was doing the dishes and he was sitting on the floor. I just left my marriage, was missing my, my, my it was just, um, and I was listening to Peter Zalski and to this day, I'm pretty sure it was Alice Monroe, but not 100%. But I was listening to him interview this writer, and I turned to Dustin, his little baby on the floor, and said, honey, I know it doesn't seem like it right now. We have this little miserable, we live by a dumpster in this one-room apartment. And I said, I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but sometime, someday, that man's going to be interviewing me. I just know it. Well, so, I mean, I if anybody had been looking in the windows in my apartment that day, they would have thought, well, she's delusional, you know. But I actually said it out loud to my baby. And so for me, it was a lot more than, oh, it's Peter Zosky and he's interviewing me. It was like... I knew, I knew, like I felt like, so when I sat in my, we recorded it, of course, and when I sat in my kitchen and um, listened to Peter interviewing me, it was, it was very powerful for me. And it was an affirmation because Peter didn't dismiss children's literature or nonsense poetry. His mom had been a children's librarian and a single parent too. And it was like electricity on the air. I couldn't see him. He couldn't see me, but it was just, he, he got it. He, and he said, I remember him saying, Sherry, what the heck is Drudders? And I thought, oh, I'm on national radio. And he caught the fact that I made up a word. And I was, <laughs> you know, I, instead of going, oh, I just made it up. I was like, um, um, well, it, it, it's when a dragon mutters. Do you get it? It's like drudders. Like it's like, 
<laughs> and, uh, and he just laughed and I, yeah. And so he became a very important, he opened the door wide because I do think it's a lot of work, but it's also luck. Like at that time, people who love books, um, they listened to, to Peter Zosky and it was like more like a one channel universe. And so if Zosky had you on a show and he liked you and he, you know, people noticed and, you know, I, I, I call him the patron saint of literacy. I have a huge uh, picture of him, huge poster of him in my little bookshop that we usually have for nine weeks in the summer. And he kind of overlooks the little shop. And I think he gets such a kick out out of uh, there being a bookshop on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. So again, Neil, you know, people travel with you, right? So after that um, sort of introduction and background, Sherry, I'm wondering if we can jump right in to your book of moments. And I'd, I'd love you, if you would, to read um, page two and three, because I think that is going to introduce us big time into what this book is all about. Okay. Okay. My son Dustin died at age 37 on March 2nd, 2018. A few weeks later, with his three-year-old daughter asleep beside me, in the middle of the darkest night of my soul, at the bottom of my deepest sorrow, I discovered overwhelming gratitude, a gratitude unlike any I had known before. I was swallowed underground that night, and it was terrifying there, excruciating. It was my own version of Dante's Inferno. When I couldn't take another breath, I had a profound experience of oneness. At grief so deep the tongue must wag in vain, the language of our sense and memory lacks the vocabulary of such pain. That's by, you know, The Inferno by Dante. There is no way to explain what cannot be explained, but as I'm, I'm as certain as I could ever be that I came very close to seeing, knowing, feeling this world through the eyes of the divine, to feeling the brokenheartedness of the whole world, past, present, and future. How beauty and horror coexist. Yes, there is darkness. But there are legions of angels and spirits who weep with us, protect us, guide us. I see now how we, the living, dwell amongst the dead. I was already in pieces, fragmented, undone, in shock, but this was another threshold. After that night, I felt like a newborn in an unpredictable world. Yet there is clarity in the unfathomable landscape of loss and sorrow. There are voices there and visions. And at the very bottom of my deepest sore was gratitude? How, how come? How, how could that be? Right, said my dear friend Deanne Fitzpatrick, right. And she has been my muse more than once. You are a writer. I want to hear what you have to say. I listened to her and to the silence. The pen was heavy to lift. Then it became a wand of healing, a way forth. I wrote, wrote, wrote. This book happened because an editor listened too, as I chronicled moments in that first year, as I sculpted, sorted, scored them. Moments, because I see the word mom in moments, and because for a while I lived not day by day, but breath by breath. I wish I could say that was an exaggeration, but anyone who has lost a child knows it's not. Time disappeared, so did the sun. I read, read, read as if books could save me. Wow. And that's, uh, that's how it begins. <laughs> it's incredible. 
<laughs> it, the, the, uh, the book is designed, um, you know, you have an invitation, then an invocation, mm-hmm. a moment of prayer, and then there are three mm-hmm. uh, segments, releasing, receiving, returning. And um, yes. I, I'd love you to uh, share with us how this is connected to the labyrinth and the whole healing process. Absolutely. Um, about, I'd say maybe the third week um, after he died, of course, you're in shock, right? You're in a state of shock and, and you know, there's, it's been, there's trauma when it's an unpredictable death. And so there's a lot happening in that brain. But I went to sleep uh, that night. And it's a miracle to get to sleep in those those moments. Um, and in in the middle of the night, I woke up in the dark and I went labyrinth. And I just sat in the dark and went labyrinth. And I I remember just feeling this sense of relief. I go yes yes that's what we can do. We can we can we can build a labyrinth for Dustin over in the pasture. We can we can do that. And. I had earlier, like years earlier, Jill and I lived in Washington, D.C. for about almost a decade. Uh, he went there with a job with CBC. And I had gone to the Washington National Cathedral and taken courses there, theology courses I've always been really interested in. And they had a, a labyrinth Tuesday. And every Tuesday you could go, they would put down this big canvas labyrinth in the in the middle of the cathedral, and you could go and walk. And anybody who's ever done walking meditation in, 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 Buddhist, in the Buddhist walking meditation, it's basically the same thing. Now, the way of the labyrinth is, and you don't have to, there's no right and wrong way, but the, th- the three R's are, you know, you set your intention and then walking in, you release whatever it is you have to release. In the center, you open up to receiving and then going out, which is, of course, a labyrinth is not a maze where you get lost. It's one path in, one path out. And walking out, you return as if you're returning to the real world. <laughs> so when we woke up um, that morning and I told Jill, I said, Jill, this is what happened. I woke up saying I had forgotten about labyrinth meditation that I did in Washington. And, you know, he was a landscaper and maybe uh, that's what we do. And Jill just looked at me and he went, that's, that's incredible. That's, yeah, let's do that. And Jordan, my other son, picked out the spot and so all that summer, I think it was really a lot of Jill's uh, way to deal with the grief as well. Rock by rock, he he built that labyrinth uh, before it had been built in the place that Jordan had picked out. I would go over and I would just pretend it was a labyrinth and walk around and around. And I said, I remember saying, you know, I know all our neighbors, which we don't have any, but they an occasional car does go by and it was the winter. So all the leaves were off the tree. And I said, I know they're saying, you know, she's, she's over there walking, literally walking around in circles. <laughs> and so um, I was, and that's what I did. And it was amazing how the, the circle, that, that rhythm, that ritual, you, you need rituals, whatever works for you. It wouldn't work for everybody, but for, for us, it was very meaningful. Him being a landscaper, he liked rocks and grass and trees and, is a, Dustin was a pretty basic guy, and it, it once the labyrinth and Jill just did a beautiful job, and I, I still go there, you know, twice a day, and, and now his daughter, you know, when she comes, she'll go, let's go see daddy. That's the first thing she'll do when she comes. She's five. She's been walking the labyrinth since she was three. So that is when I was organizing all these 
I had scribbled and, and written so much. And of course, I wasn't going to just babble on the page. I didn't want that. I wanted there to be structure and form and I wanted to weed out the weeds and all of that. And so when I was sculpting and choosing the moments and arranging them, I thought, well, this is incredible because this process I go through over and over again is releasing, receiving, returning. And I'm doing that. And that is my experience of what this grief process, this landscape of sorrow is like for me. And so it made sense to um, structure it like that. And it's, you know, thousands, the labyrinth, you know, in our minds, a lot of us think, oh, you know, there's the, there's the minotaur in the middle and you have to wrestle it and all that. You know, to me, it's quite the opposite in the labyrinth. When I go, I am meeting myself more than anything. And that could be the monster on a particular day. It could be the monster or the monster of grief or sorrow, whatever it is. But it, it, it was a good metaphor and I still do it. And, and it's many, many people find the, the labyrinth walking uh, healing. I've had children come from classrooms and walk the labyrinth and the ADHD kids are the ones that really love it. And it, you can see them just calming down that mindfulness that comes with watching your footsteps going in receiving and coming out so I've become quite a, a labyrinth um, you know I, I love when people come and say Sherry can we walk your labyrinth and I go down and I usually leave them alone because I think it for uh, often um, it's something you need to to do alone and of course uh, toward the end <clears throat> you add rejoice that's right. That's right. Because of Jean Baird, who um, she and uh, George Bowering had written a book, uh, Canadian, oh, what was the name? I it was it a Canadian Writers on Loss and Sorrow. And uh, she was so good. Jean had lost a, a, a daughter and uh, she had gotten a hold of me as, as soon as she heard. And she sent me the book. And um, it, again, it, and, she, and I remember she said, Sherry, you re- remember there's a fourth R. It's rejoice. And I am so grateful to Jean for that. Um, and I, because she was further ahead in the journey than me, right? And um, so <laughs> if Jean could say that to me, I thought there's going to be a day I can actually feel that. And uh, the heart does break, Canadian writers on grief and mourning. Um, yeah. And it was edited by George and Jean. So that was Jean. That wasn't me. That was Jean Baird reaching out to another mother in, uh, in Oh, um, on page 79, you talk about uh, growing up in Moncton and how between the ages mm-hmm. of four and 12, each night you would put your, you mm-hmm. know, through all the seasons, you would put your face against the window and, and turn your head and look at the hospital and you'd pray to people I to did. get well. So I did. How do you explain, if you will, your propensity for this healing and concern and compassion? Was this something that was part of your household or were you an exception in that sense? Well, (laughs) yeah, dad always talked about, yeah, there was this night that we heard you crying at the top of the stairs and your mom and I ran to the bottom of the stairs and you were high (laughs) stairs. I was five years old and, and they said, what's the matter? Is it your stomach? What is it? What is it? And I said, how do I know God's real if I can't see him? <laughs> Mom said, we went, oh my God, who is she? What's, what's, what's up with her? <laughs> and uh, you know what I, there is, it's in the book too. It's like my dad said nothing. It's just, he lifted me up from quilts to window ledge and for an answer pointed to the stars. 
and uh, that was so that sense of there's being something much bigger and not necessarily religion but something uh, you know uh, and I felt very much that I, I, I you know your imagination imaginary playmates I, I felt very much that there was another very real real world besides the real world I was living in so it's always been there but I I, I have a theory though too Neil that that having my bedroom um, we were just like it was walking distance five minutes to the hospital so we were down the hill but that's where our neighborhood was and we faced that hospital so I could see I could hear the ambulances at night for one thing and I could see I could actually press my window and I could see where the emergency department actually where the ambulances came in and that because it was up there they looked far away and they almost looked like little jinky toys to me but I could see them carrying people in in stretchers and that kind of thing and for me, every time there was a light on in, in, in one of those windows, I knew there was somebody in there who was sick or in pain. And it was just, I, I don't think I thought of it like I'm articulating it now. But at the time, I wasn't very comfortable going to sleep until I'd said my prayers for every window that I was looking at. It was, I don't know, you know again, I, I think I, well, that says a lot about me, doesn't it? <laughs> so, but, uh, you know... In, in in Buddhist philosophy, that's Tom Len. I was I was beaming, I was taking in the the understanding that there were suffering souls, and I was sending forth um, beams of love and beams of healing. And I didn't even really know what I was doing. One time, Mom found me in the closet. I'd taken all her lotions, Neil, all her lotions and potions from the bathroom, poured them all into one mixing bowl that I got from the basement. I went in this little secret closet that I loved because I thought it was like where I could do anything in there. And I was stirring. I was maybe, Mom said, four years old. And I was stirring all the lotions together like a potion. And she burst in the door and she looked and I'd made a mess, right? The lotions, everyone. She said, what on earth are you doing? And she said, you looked up at me really seriously. And you said, mom, I'm making medicine for all that'll make all the people in the world all better. <laughs> that was in me, I guess, you know, you know, this sense of wanting to fix or heal the pain. And of course, now I would say that's not how it works. But as a kid, I, I thought there was a magic potion and why did people have to hurt all over the world I remember my mom said this so yeah they they make jokes about me that I'm the odd one in the family but um, there was certainly a lot of of uh, wordplay and literature and love and I was a very blessed child and uh, I I had freedom to uh, explore that imagination back then so Sherry could you uh, uh, do us the pleasure of reading once when I was a mother of babies this one is, is easy for me to read. Once, when I was a mother of babies, I rocked them, made things better. When I was a mother of toddlers, I helped them with whatever. When I was a mother of teens, I prayed when they went wild. Now I am a mother of adults, helpless as a child. Now? Now I am a mother who has lost a child. There's no name for me, so call me wild. I'm a wild mother, a feral mother, wild with love, sorrow, rage, pain. I am the wild spitting wind. I am love's hurricane. Now I am a mother who has lost a son. There's no name for me. So just call me undone. And uh, finding that word undone was very liberating to me. It was, it was that, you know, because we have a name for orphans, children who lose their parents or widows, widowers. Um, there's no name for 
bereaved parents, and I think for a reason, because there is no way to name that pain. But for me, finding the word undone was really important. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I found that we are of the undone, you know, that, that, uh, Talk to us, uh, Sherry, that, uh, about, uh, the Marys in your life and the women in your life. And maybe you could even read something about, uh, Mother Mary and Paul Mary. McCartney. I don't know. I... <laughs> okay. Let's see if I can find that one. Um, well, it was very odd in those first shocking moments. I, well, I don't remember that much, but what I did remember is I was on my hands and knees outside screaming into the river. I do remember that. And um, I feel like that's the moment I, I kind of fragmented and really Neil, I, I wasn't raised Catholic and uh and my mother's family was, Jill is a very apt Catholic, but I ran in the house and I ran into the spare bedroom and I yanked open in a drawer and Jill's mother's uh, part of her rosary was there and I grabbed it. Now that was not a conscious thing. I don't know if I even knew it was there. I know that sounds, but that's what I did like on that automatic pilot and I just grabbed it. And so I feel like his mother and my grandmother immediately descended and went, okay, there, okay, we've got her, we've got her, we've got her, she's going to need us, you know, I, 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 I just felt so much that they were the first Marys who came to me, and then my friends came that afternoon, and they were, like I said, they were midwives to death, not of my son, not the birth of my son, but I, and so it's not the religious Catholic notion of Mary the Madonna, but it is that sense of the to me, always the, the in the metaphor was there could be no grief worse than Mary endured. You know, that was always, you know, the divine mother is something that I very much have a, a solid relationship with. And so I felt there were a series of Marys, and I still do, that end up coming to me uh, when I need that. And I, that's very, um, I, you know, I, I, I love Mary. I, I love Mary. I love the iconography of Mary's. I love the Madonna. You know, I love all that. And in it felt I was held, certainly by a tradition of a long line of women who knew what it was like to, uh, in some cases, have lost children. And that they were, that I had my, my ancestors and those people holding me. And there's no way else to explain it except that it happened and I felt it and you know your your felt experience you write I've heard of those dreams where someone who's died pays you a visit makes a brief Mm -hmm. appearance gives you a message I've had a few Mm -hmm. before now but I've not told Mm -hmm. many for fear of sounding crazy or pathetic or unintelligent exactly and 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 I had one Dustin came to me and in, in the dream he was four and he was a happy baby he was before he had to go into a world he never fit in. You know, he was six when he was diagnosed. But um, so he was four and I ran to him and got down on my knees and hugged him and hugged him and hugged him. And then I looked down, Neil, and he had these two vinyl LPs duct taped to his snowsuit. And I went, honey, honey, what's that? And he said, well, you know, mom, how I'm always losing things. And of course, he always was. And before I could answer him, he said, because, you know, mama, you can't lose the music. That could have been a title of, of the book, too. I 
<laughs> I know I could have done that. I, I very easily, and I thought yeah. about it, Neil. And, and I, it would have been a, a more hopeful. But because my mother had gone before me, I wanted her words to reach out. And um, But Dustin's, it was so profound. And he, I know he didn't just mean the music. He meant the music, you know, the music. And then he was gone, and I woke up. And, of course, I didn't want to wake up. But those dreams, people say your brain gives you what it needs. It could, there's a lot of scientific explanations for what that is. But you know what? I, I don't much care. It felt like I held him in my arms again. And just before I had gone to bed that night, I said out loud to Jill, I just want to hug him again. I just want to see him one more time. And, um, and he came that night. So, you know, maybe maybe we put it out there and who knows how it all works. I sure don't, Neil, not now. I, I do live in a world that I feel much more connected to the thin place than I ever have. And I always have. So, you know, the, I, I feel I do straddle the worlds between, you know, many, many worlds that we straddle. Yeah. You, you, you say, make no mistake, children live in a thin place, still half submerged in the world they came from, still in close contact with the invisible ones or sometimes replaying a time in a former life as if it were a movie. Well, it could be so. Who knows for sure what happens in inner space? So you're a, a woman of faith. You are exploring inner space. And it's apparent to me and anyone who reads this book, and it certainly is not an easy read, um, you talk about inviting people to read it. I think it's more than an invitation. It's a challenge. It's, it's one of the most difficult books I've ever read. And only, not that the language or not that the subject matter in itself was difficult, but it's, you know, you, one, the reader has to stay with it in a way that Obviously, if we can do this, we come out the other side and we have discovered things about ourselves and the grieving process and the healing process and about children and about life and about spirituality that is transformational. Neil, that makes me feel... um grateful. Thank you for expressing it that way. I'm wondering if you hadn't had to have read it because we were doing this at a, a certain, if you could have, at a certain point, I remember saying, I've never written a book that I wanted to say to people, don't read it. Don't read it. And, and if you read it, you can always close it. Just, just know, I, I felt like I was being almost sadistic um, at a certain point, but I'll tell you why I wrote it the way I did, Neil, and why I decided to publish that first summer. So he died in March and Jill insisted that we, he said, you have to open the bookshop this year, Sherry. Dustin helped us so much preparing this little bookshop and he is such a part of it. He said he would be so upset if you didn't open it and it's going to be medicine. You're going to see people, you're going to hold babies in your arms. This is going to be good for you. And I didn't want to, but he, you know, he said, oh, we worked hard. We've got to open it up. So we did. 
And it was, I mean, the, the bed, the best thing was our house is right across that dirt road from the bookshop. It's on our, but beside our barn, there's donkeys in our bookshop, right? Almost. <laughs> so, so right beside it. So I could, I had the safety of knowing if it got too intolerable and I was having a bad moment, I could just run back across the street. Linda Little, who's also a writer and my good friend, always worked the cash and, uh, and she has since we've opened. So, um, in the middle of the summer, uh, and it was hard, but people were coming, a lot of people who'd heard and I hadn't seen for a while. I mean, it's the Maritimes, right? We're all pretty close. People who had grown up with my books, parents who'd read my books. and uh, But this one woman came in. She was kind of off to the side. Her name was Dawn Leslie, and, and she was standing there, and she looked at me, and she said, Sherry, I live in, in, in St. John, and I heard and I have come to bring you this book. And I looked down and it was called Lament for a Son. And, uh, and I looked at her and I, I just kind of looked back and she said, look, you might not be able to read it now. You might not ever be able to read it. But I lost a son 17 years ago. And I knew I had to come and, and bring you this book. It's time for me to pass it on to you. She made the trip just for that. I was so overwhelmed and I said, thank you. And I brought it over to the house. I opened up the first page and I almost threw it across the room. I went, I, I, I can't go there. But about three weeks later, I picked it up one night when I couldn't sleep and it spoke to me like nothing else. I had been trying to find, you know, people were giving out, these are the stages of grief and this is great. None of that made sense. But here was a father in the midst of the messy, awful, agonizing, present tense moment of his grief expressing his love for his son and I mean Neil you're such an amazing father that's why and loving father that's why you would feel it so many people do the parents feel that pain it's our, our worst fear but this was a father who had written it about his son who died in a, a mountain accident a mountain accident and so when I finally did start writing and when it did decide, and it was with the, the encouragement of a friend and an editor who said, we'll hold space, Sherry, you know, I realized I wasn't going to sanitize it. I, I needed to, if I was ever going to write anything again, I had to face the pain. I couldn't run away from it. And writing it would help me do that. Publishing it maybe potentially could give comfort to somebody just like me, like the lament for the son had that Don gave to me. The thing was, Neil, is he was a father and nothing against, I know the pain can be as deep, but it was in my, it, I always say this was writing from the wound, but it was also writing from the womb. My body gave birth to him and my body was in incredible. Every cell of my body was in grief and I'm very mind body connected. You know, I, I am, I, you know, I, I, and so, that was the reason I took the, the reader to the place of pain. And I had a visit on Saturday from a woman from Moncton who's a, a friend brought her up. She lost her son about the same time I lost Dustin. And she said, I cannot tell you what you, what you gave me. I couldn't articulate what I was feeling. And I read your book and you, I was going, yes, 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 yes. I said, even all the four letter swearing words. And she said, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was why that decision was made. And uh, you telling me your, your, your process with reading it, Neil, that, that means a lot, a lot. I want to 
skip ahead almost to the end of the book when you get the call from the coroner's office because uh, D um, knew that he was going to die. Uh, certainly before you, he told you, you know, mom, I've, I've done a lot of damage to my body and you, I'm sure were anyway, let, let, uh, why don't you take it from there? What was agonizing is that because Dustin had struggled all his life, um, and he'd been doing so well. He'd been in recovery. He, you know, he he eventually, you know, he was suicidal as a teen, and then he eventually self-medicated and got in trouble with the pain pills and uh, was addicted. But he was had been on a road of recovery. He was in active recovery when he died. But he had been with us. He had stayed with us all fall and winter, right up until February. And he said, I really, ha- I'm really sorry, but I really have to go into the city and deal with things. You know, he was here trying to come off methadone. And uh, so we didn't want him to, but you know, he, he was 37. You, you try to support and respect and we had held him in a good space for quite a while. So when we got that call, um, there were a couple of things going on in his life and uh, there were a couple of possibilities. Did he relapse? Um, did he take something that was laced with something? There was a lot of fentanyl scares and actually there was just one on the weekend. And what, 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 what about that? Or was it suicide? Um, all those were possibilities and we did not get that, that we didn't, we didn't get that call for eight months. And uh, that was excruciating, not knowing and knowing that there were all the possibilities. So I'll, I'll read this. Let me tell you now, it's October and we've just returned from Cape Breton after being with friends who've held us for days with meals and boat rides and walks and talks and love and some magic too. Let me tell you now it's October when they finally call from the coroner's office, eight months of waiting every night, every day, wondering how, 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 how. She apologizes for the delay, but called me instead of making us wait longer for the letter. Again, a voice, a cushion of kindness. Cause of death, pneumonia. Not suicide, not overdose. He went to sleep and never woke up, she told me. His body gave out. Now I hear him saying again what he said to me in January. You know, Mom, I've done a lot of damage to my body. Did he know? Did he know? I run to the labyrinth, then my legs give out. So I crawl on my belly around each twist and turn, crawl to the center where the earth holds me, as the earth ever will, where my tears tears soak the grass, where the birds are still singing. Chickadee, dee, dee. You know, Mama, you can't lose the music. Death is not death. It matters how a person dies. It matters how a soul lived and died, what images those left behind have to hold or erase about the final moments. Pain is pain is pain is pain is pain. And as relieved as I am that we can tell his children he didn't die by his own hand, he died trying, traveling towards the light. Even as I gulp for air, let out all that I have swallowed in and down for seven months, weep realizing how many others will not get this relief. Weep because of the agony of others 
sorrow could kill a person if this is what some omnipotent God sees and feels. God must be taking some serious antidepressants to stay alive. So yes, I weep guilty tears of gratitude for my gift of a different ending. Weep because there is no going back now to any kind of world I knew before, before what I did think, what did I think knowing would do. When the letter comes, I touch it like it's poison, stare at it. You don't have to open it, he says in a whisper. I do though. My heart burst into flames. There it is in black and white. My son, my son, my son is dead. I take my last breath, die to the me I once was. What a process and what a gift uh, this this book is, Sherry. Um, I think that's that's probably a a good note to end on. And I, I want to thank you very much for all that you do. Um, and uh, maybe when this uh, COVID is over, I'll have a chance to visit you at your dreamery and bookshop and walk the labyrinth. I, I, I hope you do, Neil. I hope you bring your family and do because it is, uh, it's very powerful. People go and say the power, but it's just because there's so much love there. And that's one thing I think we should end on that note is that, you know, rebirth is possible. I died to the me I once was, and I'm still in a new landscape. It's not necessarily a worse place to be. I feel he's never far away. And of course, the cliche love never dies is a cliche because it's true. And so slowly, slowly, I'm finding who the new Sherry is. Goes back to that Winnie line, to have been always who I was, but so changed from what I was. Thank you so much, Sherry. Take good care. Thank you so much for your close and, and considerate reading, Neil. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Sherry Fitch about her book, You Won't Always Be This Sad. Thank you all for listening today. And thanks again to Peter, Lorna, Neil, and Sherry for participating in Writers' Festival Radio. Join us on Friday for a special conversation on Terry Fox. Mark Sutcliffe hosts Terry's brother, Daryl Fox, on the 40th anniversary of the Marathon of Hope. The Writers' Festival, including this podcast, is made possible by support from the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Canada Council for the Arts, and the Ontario Arts Council. It is also supported by charitable donations from generous individuals like you. If you enjoy what we do, please consider making a tax-creditable donation at writersfestival.org. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Sean Wilson